Hi guys and happy Monday. For this week's episode, I'm actually switching gears a little bit and going kind of back to basics with my conversation with Ariella Gross, who is a really good friend of mine who actually was like really instrumental in helping me um, work on my application to Columbia for social work. She is a graduate of the Columbia School of Social Work of the class of 2022, working at um, a therapy practice in New York City. So if you are, you know, looking for a new therapist, highly recommend Ariella. I'm sure after listening to this podcast, you will be like looking her up to be like, I want her to be my therapist because I personally wanted her to be my therapist, but that's not really possible. So, um, she's awesome. And I think the, the main reason I wanted to record this episode in addition just to have the opportunity to chat with Ariella is to shed some light on kind of like the process of finding a therapist and what to look for in one and the, the little nuances to look out for because I think you know I, what prompted this for me was I'm a social work student and you know I'm studying to do this and it still confuses me and if it confuses me then it confuses someone who isn't studying all the you know different type modalities of therapy, the nuances between an LMSW and L, uh, PC and LMHC, LCSW, PhD, etc. All the acronyms. So um, Ariella really explains the differences between like different types of therapists, different modalities, and just sheds some light on how to you know what questions to ask a therapist in that initial con- uh, consultation. So that's a little bit about the episode. Just quickly kind of updating everyone on my life, I guess, with the next part. I was so lucky that I had my spring break last week and I was able to travel um, out west to Marfa, Texas and Big Bend and go hiking for a few days with two of my good friends. And it was just so... Oops, there's my alarm. It was just so lovely and needed. And I think, I don't know, I, I, I forgot how healing nature could be. And there was just a moment when I was sitting on the summit of one of the hikes in Big Bend, just like looking at the sky thinking, wow, this is, this is truly magical. This is the perfect moment. And so for anyone who's having a bad day, I encourage you to go on a walk. Um, Just... Maybe get some fresh air. Do whatever you can to be with nature because it definitely helped me um, because I was feeling in a rough-ish spot last week. So, yeah, that's really all I had to share and chat about. Also, if you have any hot takes, please DM me because that's uh, something I'm looking to do a little series on. So, if you have any hot takes about love or life, let me know. Without further ado, here is Ariella. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace and the City. Today, I am so excited to be here with my friend, Ariella Gross, who is a psychotherapist, graduate of the Columbia School of Social Work, shout out, mentor, and friend. Ariel, thank you so much for being here. It's crazy that it's been so long, and we're finally doing this. I know. I'm so, I was so excited when you reached out. I'm so happy to be here. So for context um, to those listening, when I was originally applying to Columbia, I I think I posted like the sweats in the city group and was like, hey, does anyone have any advice on how to apply for schools of social work? And Ariel kindly responded and offered to give me advice. And like, I really attribute so much of the fact that I got into just your help and guidance because you were like a literal godsend. Oh my gosh, of course. No, you, you did the work. I just helped kind of refine some essays and give advice. We all, we all do it. People did it for me too. Oh, well, you were definitely paying it forward and I, it's so appreciative. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? Where do you currently live? What's your story? Absolutely. So I'm originally from Washington, D.C., I, the real D.C., not the suburbs. Um, and I went to Georgetown undergrad. I was a psychology major, so I stayed in the DMV. Um, 
And after graduating, I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school to be a clinician. I wasn't really sure what degree I wanted or what capacity. Um, so I took a job in New York working at a private practice for a year. Um, and during that time, I learned about a type of therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy. I'd never heard of it before. Um, and I was really taken aback by how many clients were coming into the practice. Um, having said they'd been in therapy for years, weren't seeing progress, you know, and after six months of doing DBT, they were, you know, reaching these goals and replacing ineffective behaviors that they had never thought that they would be able to. So again, no idea what DBT was, but that was pretty cool. Um, and I ended up at Columbia. I was really between degrees, but I ended up at Columbia in part because they had a really strong DBT program. I think it's the only one at School of Social Work, mm -hmm. a 12-month intensive DBT program. Um, and I kind of ap applied a little bit like crap shooting because I wasn't really sure that I was going to get into this program. Um, but I ended up doing it. It was an incredible experience. So I did my graduate training at Columbia. Um, and then now I am living and working in Manhattan um, as it, working for a private practice, psychotherapy, um, or excuse me, Prescott Psychotherapy and Wellness. That's so awesome. And I didn't know you worked at a private practice before starting at Columbia. That's awesome. Yeah. So I worked for one year as an intake coordinator during my like, what do I want to do next year mm -hmm. um, period? Because I knew I didn't want to go straight to school, especially if I was pursuing a PhD, which would be like six or seven years. Yeah. Um, and it was really during that year that I kind of refined my interests. Um, and it gave me the insight that I was looking for to figure out, okay, what program do I want to apply for? What do I want to specialize in? What modalities do I want exposure to? That's so awesome. I wish I had figured that out earlier. <laughs> Maybe if we'd met a year earlier, I could have given you that. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's wild because I mean, now I, I look like to my future and I only see therapy in it. And, but like thinking about where I was after graduation, I was literally like, my clients were hedge fund managers. So it's very, very the, the antithesis of therapy. It's fine. <laughs> like literally the antithesis. So um, just wow. And so kind of going off of that, you know, I wanted to become a therapist, I, I figured it out much later on. And part of the reasoning was honestly like almost like a selfish like way and be in the sense that I wanted to learn more about myself and, you know, about why I had experienced certain mental health conditions as a, a kid, as a teen, young adult, adult, et cetera. And then also like for future purposes of being like, I want to be able to be the best mom I can be. I want to be able to be the best partner I can be. Um, and this was all like an aha moment I had while recording a podcast with a psychologist. So you seem to have like kind of known that you wanted to go into the, you know, psychotherapy or like mental health services profession um, from a younger age. So I was wondering like, why that was and like how you knew you, that you wanted to become a therapist? Yeah, absolutely. So I knew I would say kind of like end of high school, starting college, starting college, I was like, I definitely would be a psychology major. Um, but I didn't always know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I grew up with a brother who was on the autism spectrum. Um, and as a part of that, I mean, our family had to work with a lot of you know, therapists. And for a while, I thought, you know, that was something that I really wanted to do. I'd seen how much help this had given my brother and my family and support. And I thought I wanted to work with children on the spectrum or families of people on the spectrum and almost like pay it forward in that way. So I guess similar to what you were saying that, you know, mm -hmm. you were you wanted to understand your own um, struggles more that I really was interested in helping this population. Um, and I interned or I worked at a camp for kids on the spectrum. I, um, I worked at a lab at Children's National, um, working with kids on the spectrum. So I was doing a lot of research. And then at some point, I just found that what I've always loved is talking to people um, and that it didn't really matter what condition. I just found that as I was getting to meet more people in labs that I just it wasn't even that my niche was really within the autism spectrum disorders. I started taking an abnormal psych class in um, college, which was one of my favorite classes, learning more about anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, all sorts of other kind of niche neurological disorders, tick disorders. 
um, paraphilia, that everything. I just thought it was really fascinating. Um, and I thought I would kind of expand a little bit, um, not because I, I didn't like working with, you know, families affected by autism, but just because I felt like maybe I was getting pulled in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I basically, and I actually have this weird memory of when I was little and one of my friends talking to me about, um, an issue she was having with another friend. And I remember taking out a notepad and starting like writing notes, I think just cause I had like seen it on TV and I was like, this is what people do when, when other people are upset, yeah. right? They, they listen and they, and they write it down and they give feedback. So I think there's almost like a part of me that always knew this. And I really do, you know, it sounds so corny, but in a lot of ways, I, I think it is kind of my calling. I love what I do. I love my clients. Um, I, I've never once doubted this decision. Um, and I think that even though I kind of was in like different spheres of what I wanted to work with, I always knew that for me, I wanted to work in a field where I could help people. I think that finding meaning out of your work is the biggest gift you can give yourself, right? Selfish in some ways, right? I think I'm selfish too, right? I, Mm -hmm. through helping people feel good, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and me feeling good is not the the primary reason I went into the field, but I think that it's certainly something that's going to keep me in the field. Yeah. There's this quote that I love who, um, that was said by someone I had on the podcast named Isaac Hingen Miller, which is esteemable actions build self-esteem. And I think that is just so applicable to like the profession that, you know, you're in and I'm pursuing. And it's, I mean, it's so, it's just like so cool to hear that you had that recognition so early on because even though mine occurred when I was like 24 um so a little bit later on I remember like it was like a light bulb went off like I literally was like oh my gosh this makes so much sense I love talking to people I love hearing their stories I I'm like when I whenever my friends were you know sad or going through something in college like I was always the one who wanted to like sit next to them and like hear about what was happening and help them through their problem and so it's like it made so much sense it was almost just like I hadn't like put the puzzle pieces together until that moment when I was recording with um with Dr. Appleton shout out (laughs) (laughs) so as we I mean you mentioned that you know when your brother was like growing up you kind of navigated the whole like therapy world and and finding a therapist and I think you know obviously like when we're young and kids like hopefully our parents kind of take the wheels on that and then you're kind of thrown into adulthood wanting to find a therapist I'm, I'm like speaking for like let's say myself at 23 or something you know and then you're on like a starting salary of someone who just graduated college and there's just so many hurdles to jump through in terms of finding a therapist. And, you know, often the first things we look for when we find it, when we're looking for a therapist is someone who's, you know, covered by our insurance or at the very least, like somewhat in our budget or, you know, I mean, pre-COVID it was, you know, in a convenient location. Post-COVID maybe like do they offer remote sessions? And while these are all, like are all very valid criteria to be basing our like therapist search on I think the only thing worse than like having a therapist that doesn't meet all those criteria is then having one and then not connecting with them and then having going like to go back to the beginning start the whole process again because at least for me like breaking up with a therapist is like the most awkward thing ever and it can really deter people from wanting to you know go go through therapy they made such a brave choice to begin that search and then all of a sudden they're back at square one um so like I would argue that like the first question we should ask ourselves when looking for a therapist is like what we want to get out of that therapeutic experience so you know let's say I am new to therapy um I have certain things that I'm like looking for but I don't know you know how to connect the dots between like what modalities I should search for etc what should I be looking for on websites such as psychology today? (laughs) Sure. So that's a great question. And I think that there, you know, I I help a lot of my friends navigate this process because it's not so self-explanatory and 
you know, even when I was growing up, it was kind of like prescribed by my, my brother's school, right? They provided the people that would kind of come to our house and talk to our family. Um, and so navigating it, you know, it can be really overwhelming, especially if you have no experience. So I would say that, you know, one thing to really think about, and you were kind of talking about this, is what I want help with, right? And you might not even know that yet. And also mm. therapy is going to help you figure that out. But, you know, is it my mood feels lower, right? than it normally does. I'm having trouble focusing, staying motivated, or maybe I'm feeling more anxious. Maybe I'm noticing that I have these intrusive thoughts and I can't get them to go away unless I engage in kind of ritualistic behaviors. Um, or maybe I went through something really difficult. Maybe people know about it, maybe they don't. Um, but trying to identify what it is you want help with, right? Because different modalities are not gonna be as effective for different psychopathologies. So that's something I really recommend doing. And then also educating yourself on the different modalities. And I understand that this also kind of puts the burden on you. Um, and I think if you have a friend in the field, I really encourage you to just reach out and be like, oh, what are all these acronyms, right? CBT, yeah. CBT, ACT, EMDR, right? Everything. Um, but I can also give like a little bit of a brief summary, if that would be helpful, of what some of those are. Absolutely. I was literally, I literally have a section called acronym galore because there's just so many terms um, and acronyms when it comes to therapy. Like, I mean, even just starting out with, you know, when you, when you're going to see a medical doctor, they have like medical doctor. It's very self-explanatory, but when you're searching for a therapist, you can see anything from, you know, MD to PhD to PsyD to LCSW, LMSW, LMHC, LPC. It like you, if I weren't getting this degree, I, I mean, I still don't fully understand like what I'm, what exactly it is that I'm getting, how I get it. And then like what the difference is between all of these. So maybe just starting there, like, you know, for example, psychiatrist versus psychologist versus psychotherapist. And then like, right we can get into the the nuances of, psych of psychotherapist after. Yeah, so I would say that psychotherapists kind of can encompass psychologists, social workers, right, and psychiatrists all together. Um, so when you think of a psychiatrist or MD, this is a prescriber. Um, so people typically wouldn't go to them for weekly therapy. They could, often quite expensive. Yeah, um, but this is someone who you might check in with, I think every six months and they help manage medication. Um, you can also work with a psychiatric nurse practitioner. That's a little bit of newer thing entering the field too, that kind of functions under that. So if you see MD or, you know, NP, it's typically a prescriber. This might not be someone that you're seeing every week. Um, so then there's psychologists and psychotherapists and one is the other, the other is not the, you know, the one. Yeah. So psychologists are people who have doctorate level degrees in psychology, right? So that can be a PhD or a PsyD, which again, is a newer degree as well. Um, typically, PhDs have, I would say, of, of these, the most research experience. That's a large part of the degree and, and part of why I did not pursue that degree. Um, and so those are kind of what falls under the psychologist. And one is not better than the other. It's just different. Psych um Societies tend to have a lot more clinical experience, less research experience. And then you get into kind of the L land, right? Yeah. Um, and the L, for anyone wondering, is just licensed. Um, so there's an LMSW, which is what I am, licensed master social worker. And then there's an LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. And then in some states like Massachusetts, there's an LICSW. Basically, the only difference is the LM versus LC, a C can practice on their own. Right. So as an LM, I am still supervised. So I do my sessions one on one, but once a week, I, once a week, I meet with my supervisor. So you need a certain amount of clinical hours of supervision, which in the state of New York is it's three years, basically. And then you can become an LCSW. And basically the difference is you could practice on your own. Right. So I practice under someone else at a practice right now versus in, you know, two and a half years. If I wanted to, I'd be able to practice on my own. So then there's an LMHC and an LPC. So LMHC is a licensed mental health counselor and an LPC is a licensed personal counselor. There's also an LMFC, <laughs> licensed marriage and family therapist. So I'm not as familiar with, um, you know, the non-social work degrees. Um, however, they are all master's level. 
So with the psychologist, it means doctorate. With the, you know, L's, it's master's level. Um, in my experience and what I've, you know, gotten feedback from people, it doesn't necessarily change the experience in session, right? You can have a great experience with someone who has a master's degree, a terrible experience with someone who has a doctorate. I have a client who used to see a psychiatrist weekly um, and ha is having so much of a better experience seeing me. Or you might find you want someone with the additional, you know, training and research experience. So it really is a personal decision. Um, but that is kind of the broad overview of what all these little acronyms mean uh, in terms of at least degrees in licensing. That's so helpful. You said that so well. And I think, like, as you said, ultimately, the most important thing is, is like the connection that you have with that person. Like, can do you feel comfortable talking to them? Do they, you know, ask you the, like questions that make you kind of self-reflect and like that's the most important thing. So it, I think it's good to like obviously get understanding of, you know, all those different um, like what they all mean, but also know that like when going through that search, it's not necessarily like I'd say the number one criteria to be basing your decision on unless you're like right. actually looking for medication. Right. You know, if you, if you're looking for medication management, you cannot go to a psychologist or any LMSW, LCSW, LPC, all of that. You really need to be seeing an MD or a psych MP. Great. So um, you talked a little bit about, you know, DBT and how it brought you to Columbia. So I was hoping that first of like the modalities, you could talk a little bit about some of the evidence-based modalities. So, you know, CBT, DBT, um, and like what they mean and what types of you know conditions so to speak they're most effective for sure i'm happy to give a little bit of a, a crash course on that so i'll start with cbt because dbt is a sub kind of category within cbt so cbt stands for cognitive behavioral therapy and what i would say is the biggest kind of difference between behavioral orientations cbt dbt uh act a little bit or some of the evidence-based and more psychodynamic approaches is how they conceptualize how different psychopathologies arise and what is kind of at the root of anxiety, right? So CBT, um, there's this kind of CBT triangle of thoughts, emotions, um, and actions or behavior. And within CBT, it's basically believed that your these three are interconnected, right? A lot of times we don't respond to events, we respond to our interpretation or thoughts about events. And in turn, that you know, creates different emotions, right? So one event is, you know, you see a friend in the subway, they don't wave at you, right? An automatic thought might be, they don't like me, right? Or they're embarrassed, so they don't want to wave at me. That's going to make you upset, right? The emotion, and then it's going to in turn affect your behavior. Maybe that friend texts you, and you give them the cold shoulder or something, right? Versus another thought could be, they didn't see me, right? If that was your thought, then your emotion in theory would probably be pretty neutral, and your behavior would probably remain unchanged, right? And in this example, the event didn't change, right? It was a friend seeing you on the, or on the subway, didn't wave at you. The only thing that changed was your thoughts, right? And you can see how different thoughts change your emotions and therefore your behavior and actions. So CBT is focused on looking at those thoughts, right? Through cognitive restructuring and reframing. That's a large part of it and saying, you know, am I engaging in ineffective thinking patterns? Am I treating my thoughts as facts? Or am I actually taking time to kind of evaluate the evidence, right? And we see how through, um, you know, challenging our thoughts, we can really change our emotions, which is amazing. So then you come to DBT, which, and, and CBT, part of it is also, you know, because of this relationship between behavior and emotion and thoughts, using our behavior to enact cognitive change, right? So you hear of behavioral activation. Um, that's a treatment protocol for depression, right? And this involves you know, it's much more nuanced and structured than this, but effectively doing things, right? Doing things behaviorally to improve your mood. Um, and exposure therapy, which is something that I specialize in, is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Where you actually, you know, expose yourself to certain stimuli that, you know, cause phobias or, you know, different um, fears in order to eventually almost like desensitize yourself to these and create new learning, right? So it's, it's more of like an action-based therapy is how I describe CBT. 
DBT is a type of CBT that also draws in uh, from Zen Buddhism, and it also it stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, and for those people who didn't know what dialectics were, I don't think I really knew what it was. It, it's basically um, it, it's finding the gray area, and it's kind of instead of either or, it's the both and thinking, right? That two things can be true, um, and it helps kind of reduce polarization. So DBT was originally developed for um, borderline personality disorder and to, you know, be a treatment for um, severe emotion dysregulation, particularly in populations with higher levels of suicidality and self-harm. So it's a pretty structured form of treatment that covers four modalities of emotion regulation, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, and mindfulness, um, and involves uh, an individual therapy component as well as a group therapy component. Um, and so I had an advisor in grad school who basically decided describe the difference between CBT and DBT is CBT is like big C, little B. So it's a lot of cognitive work, some behavioral, but not as much. DBT is very um, behavioral, right? So a lot of the skills involve doing things in order to then help you regulate your emotions, cognition. So that's kind of CBT and DBT. And I tend to blend the two. Um, I think the DBT skills are excellent and I incorporate them into a lot of my individual work, even though technically that is group work in DBT. Wow. Wait, <laughs> I am such an idiot. I thought dial <laughs> I thought dialectical behavioral therapy was the same as CBT except for like dial am I like I was thinking like dialects like speaking. You thought it was like in different languages. <laughs> I thought it was like saying things out loud. I mean I guess that is a, you know, doing Yeah, so it's dialectics, not dialect. I had no idea. See, this is what, right? <laughs> and you're in school, right? So imagine like a random person, right? When I say I do, my dad thought it was like a sorority. <laughs> that it could be too. I feel like it probably is somewhere. Wait, that is so, oh my gosh. I'm really happy that uh, I recorded this before my interviews. Like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And oh my gosh. The, wow. Okay. So... <laughs> A, thank you for explaining that to me. And that makes so much sense. So mental health conditions that come to mind for CBT would be like, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, especially when thinking about uh, how you said you have a focus in exposure therapy. So for example, you know, let's say I am afraid that if I like hold if, if I touch like the sidewalk that I'm going to catch like a bunch of diseases like working through that um I guess if you could like expand mm -hmm. some other things aside from you know that which is very yeah oriented towards exposure therapy sure so um and I can e even touch on that a little bit because I do have training in exposure and response prevention which is the um treatment protocol for OCD it's kind of like the gold standard but so CBT, um, well, DBT has gone through, right? These are both forms of evidence-based treatment. And all that means is that they've been through clinical trials and demonstrated efficacy. Um, so if you hear that, you know, EBT thrown around, that's typically what it means. Um, and so DBT has demonstrated efficacy for a whole range of disorders, anxiety disorders, different mood disorders, um, eating disorders, there's adaptations for it. The one thing that it's, it's not to my knowledge, particularly effective for is psychotic spectrum disorders, right? Schizophrenia, schizoaffective, um, does not work as well. CBT, similar, can be used for anxiety, depression, uh, you know, OCD, but it's, it's a little bit nuanced with the ERP. Um, I'm not, I don't specialize in eating disorders. I typically refer out for that, um, but I imagine that there's a behavioral component in there. Um, so those are kind of, I'm most familiar with CBD for anxiety and depression. And then ERP, what that is for OCD is, you know, it's quite literally, we, you know, you have an intrusive thought and then you have a compulsion, which neutralizes that thought, right? It removes the anxiety. And it is gradually exposing you to the intrusive thoughts um, while preventing or withholding, right? Your, the neutralizing compulsion uh, in order for people to see, right? To, it creates new learning, but it also shows you that, the feared consequence is not going to happen, but it also works on tolerating uncertainty, right? A lot of times OCD is around uncertainty, right? What is, you know, if this doesn't happen, you know, 
this certain way, this could happen, right? Or a really common one is, you know, like maybe I'm, you know, a certain way and I don't realize it, right? Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And it gets also comfortable to exposing to, maybe you are, right? Maybe this thing about yourself that you're worried about is true, right? And you can either keep doing rituals to temporarily, you know, decrease your anxiety before it spikes again, or you can expose yourself to the thought, sit with that discomfort, right? And, and over time, the anxiety will go down which is, is not the best, most eloquent example. Um, but, you know, if, if you see a scary movie the first time, it's probably terrifying to you, right? This is the exposure therapy kind of um, rationale. But if you watch that same scary movie every single day, it will gradually get less scary. The stimulus doesn't change, but your response to it too, right? You learn, oh, I can watch the scary movie and nothing bad happens to me. No, I think that was perfectly said. If any of that resonates with you, if, you know, I think especially that first example you gave on the subway, as someone who's a big people pleaser and used to worry a lot about, you know, my God, my friends hate me. They're mad at me. They didn't text me back. That may be something to look into. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I, you know, I think CBT and learning to evaluate your thoughts, whether or not you're in therapy is a really effective tool. Right? I use it a lot myself. Right. And just thinking about, okay, am I assuming we often assume that just because we think something it's a fact, right? I feel a certain way. And so therefore it must be true, right? But your feelings aren't fact and your thoughts aren't fact, which can seem kind of harsh, but it's actually really effective to realize that, right? That just because I have a thought, my friend's mad at me, doesn't mean they're mad at me. They might be, they might not be. They might be having a terrible day, Yeah. right? Or I might be being overly sensitive to something, right? And so it's actually um, to kind of get more comfortable in that, you know, area of uncertainty and going away from your automatic thought I think is a really, really amazing thing and skill to have. A hundred percent. So I guess like the next group of like modalities. So let's say you're you know looking at psychology today and someone has next to their bio that they take a psychodynamic approach. What does that mean? Sure. So a lot of times people use psychodynamic and psychoanalytic a little bit um, interchangeably. So psycho psychoanalysis, right, which was created by Freud is a form of psychodynamic therapy. Um, And there have been other kind of iterations, right, like Carl Jung, Alfred Adler, Eric Erickson, these are all um, still psychodynamic modalities, but Freud's is kind of psychoanalysis. And basically, you know, similar to how I was describing with CBT, the conceptualization is that it's our the way we're perceiving things, right, or, or our thoughts that often create a lot of the emotions and anxiety. Um, the way that psychodynamic approaches conceptualize anxiety is through kind of the unconscious, right? So it's almost this like iceberg um, example where um, our our unconscious mind is kind of all of everything under the iceberg. So we're, we're only really aware of certain things. And under that, we store in our unconscious a lot of, you know, how our childhood and early experiences affect us. And it might be outside of our awareness. Right. And that our relationship focuses a lot on early childhood and kind of like latent things that we are not aware of. Right. And so part of psychoanalysis and psychodynamic work is exploring childhood and early life events and seeing how there may be things that are unresolved from our earlier experiences that are manifesting as anxiety right now, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, again, it is that it's simplifying and reducing a very, you know, complex form of therapy, but that is what I would say is like a bigger difference that psychodynamic, it might feel more conversational um, versus a behavioral therapy. It might feel more, you know, active in some ways, right? I give clients homework um, and worksheets and things like that. Um, Psychodynamic, it's really getting a look at, you know, things that are, you know, coming up and and understanding how it affects you um, from your past. Yeah, it's very... Like when you think of Freud and, you know, like there's like a Freudian slip or something. The whole point of a Freudian slip is that you didn't mean to say it, but it meant something. Right. It's like in your subconscious. And one thing I will say is that, you know, I think there's this kind of belief among therapists that those in behavioral or evidence-based forms of treatment kind of like look down on psychoanalysis or psychodynamic modalities. I certainly experienced this in my graduate training program, right, where it's, you know, it's very focused on DBT and pure DBT, 
What I will say is that from learning more about all these modalities, they really all draw on each other in different ways, yeah. right? Within DBT, how you conceptualize, again, emotion dysregulation is through something called the biosocial theory. And it's basically that your biology and genetic predispositions interact with your environment, right? And can affect the way you regulate emotions. And the environmental piece is childhood, right? It, it is it explores if you were invalidated growing up, right? So in that aspect, is leaning on your childhood and looking at how these earlier experiences interact with your biology to create difficulties in emotion regulation, right? That is not inconsistent with a psychodynamic approach. So there, they, there yeah. is bits of all of these in each other. Yeah. And I would even argue like that the best forms of therapy kind of take the best bits and pieces of each thing. Like even when talking about CBT, the first thing that comes like to mind is the concept of my, like mindfulness. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, I guess you just said DBT draws on like Buddhism, which is- Yeah, that's actually a really big component. But it is interesting because, you know, you think about things like somatic experiencing or something like that, which is very yeah. like, mind body focused. And you think like, oh, that's so like woo woo or whatever. But then when you think and like, you know, CBT, DBT, very, as you said, like they've been they had clinical trials, they've been proven to be effective. But at the same time, they're also evoking that thing of mindfulness of saying, OK, like pause. Why did I have this thought? You know, is it rational? It really keeps you present in the moment. Right, right. And drawing on exactly that the present moment right so much anxiety is really about the future um or the you know rumination in the past and when you're not focused on the present moment you know a lot of times what we're actually worrying about is not happening this moment so when we are mm -hmm. thinking about the future or the past we're bringing that stress into the present moment right we are literally taking it from the future or the past and bringing it to where it is not in this moment right so you know dbt a, bit, a large part of it is grounding yourself in the present moment and you know seeing how focusing on that can actually increase your overall happiness and reduce suffering. That's, I've, I mean, I'm going to ask you so many more questions after this podcast because I just still feel like my whole world has been flipped upside down. So I guess the last kind of quote unquote group of therapeutic approaches I want to talk about are some trauma focused modalities such as like EMDR, AEDP. Um, what are the, what are these and like, what are the benefits of them? Sure. So, you know, I should start by saying that I do not specialize in trauma, but I do have kind of ground level knowledge of them. Um, so EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's, you know, a, a form of psychotherapy that's developed for trauma. And, you know, a big part of it is that, you know, a lot of the manifested symptoms, right? PTSD, for example, are because we have not actually processed the traumatic event right? We often repress or, or hold back, don't think about. Um, why do we do that? Because it's so difficult to confront, right? These devastating things that have happened or things that we've seen. Um, so part of EMDR is processing the trauma, right? Talking about it out loud while your eyes are focused on something that is, you know, going back and forth. So it's like your brain is processing this, um, but you're not just kind of sitting in the emotion as you're doing that. I am not particularly familiar with the science behind why this works, um, but I would imagine that it's similar to um, PE, which is prolonged exposure. So again, it's an exposure-based therapy. It is, you know, DBT PE is, is what I'm most familiar with, um, but it is, again, prolonged exposure, and it's focused on exposing you to the traumatic event, which sounds miserable, and it can be incredibly difficult, um, which is why you have to meet certain metrics and be in a certain place with certain amount of motion regulation skills to be able to engage in PE and start PE. Um, but you write almost like an impact statement, right, about how your trauma is affecting you. And you go through, you know, both in session and between sessions to generalize, um, basically go through your trauma, you know, writing it down and speaking it out loud. And expose yourself to something that you've probably been avoiding, right? Because avoidance inherently, right? And it, it doesn't give us an opportunity to see that we can confront these terrible things and be okay, right? And that yeah. it's difficult. And at the same time, right? A lot of times we can't just get over, we have to get through. Yeah, no, so well said. And it's, it's interesting, you know, because I think so many people are nervous to 
even go into therapy because of that, because they don't want to confront the the trauma they've experienced because they don't want to talk about those things. So it really shows you that it's like baby steps, you know, like just getting into the office is step one. If you want to go like all the way and, you know, relive that trauma as a way to overcome it by all means, but it's in no way like a prerequisite or like, you know, to therapy. It's not like, as I think you've kind of explained every different modality and approach is going to have a, a different way of like easing you into moving into your past, if at all. Right. Right. And I would, and no, you know, ethically oriented clinician, which I hope is anyone that you would see, uh, whatever force you into trauma treatment, right? We might gently encourage because, you know, we have a lot of understanding and research about how trauma impacts you later in life, years after it, you know, even psychosomatic symptoms, right? It can manifest physically. I don't know if you've heard of The Body Keeps Score, that book, right? Um, So, you know, it is a way of extending help to someone, right? But I would never for it's incredibly difficult and sensitive. And I would never say to a client, right, I will not see you unless you work on this thing, if it's not something they want to work on. Yeah, it's not like that show the patient or whatever with (laughs) <laughs> I haven't seen that, but everyone tells me I should watch it. Really? I haven't seen it either. I heard it like wasn't that good. And now there's another show with um, Jason. What's his name? Not Sudeikis. The guy from How I Met Your Mother. Jason Siegel. Siegel. Yeah. Yeah. There's another show with him um, where he's a, the patient. So obviously therapy's cool. <laughs> Very in vogue. So in 2023, I'm really trying to kind of amp up my health and fitness routine from a holistic perspective. And one of the ways I've been doing this is with Oro, which is an app providing a one-stop shop for different types of virtual fitness and wellness rituals. Um, I don't know if any of y'all are fans of the account Sweats in the City. Um, When I was living in New York, I practically, you know, it was practically like my Instagram Bible. And I just look up to Elizabeth and Dale so much as female entrepreneurs um, and just like what they've created. So Oro, if you don't know, was created by them. And so it has all of their favorite boutique fitness and self-care classes in one place. All videos are live, um, but they're also on demand. So you can watch it anytime uh, from anywhere. There's over 500 classes and instructors to intu- uh, to choose from. And they're all of my favorite types of classes like Pilates, bar, sculpt, um, and then more wellness things like meditation and sound baths. Um, yesterday, I did this amazing Pilates slash meditation class with Natasha and it was exactly what I needed. It's freezing outside and I didn't want to you know, pay for a day pass at the gym and so I'm just so glad that I have this app. And again, it's also really cheap. That is like the best part. I was paying for class pass previously and it's like, okay, you you know, pay a certain amount of month for a certain amount of credits, but those credits don't, don't get you very far, especially in like a place like New York. And so if you uh, download the app, it's only $19 a month, but you can get $5 off your first month and a free week trial by using the promo code Zoe Skur. So that's Zoe, Z-O-E-S-C-U-R, all one word. And you'll get, it'll be basically $14 for an unlimited amount of classes for a month and an extra free week. So highly encourage that you check it out. And if you have any questions, let me know. So my last question, um, and I guess to preface for anyone listening, many times therapists offer like a 10-minute free phone call for you to kind of get to know them, ask them any questions um, before you, you know, commit to paying a certain amount of money for, you know, those regular 50-minute sessions. And I think sometimes, you know, people have those calls, but they don't know what to ask. Yeah. What are some questions that people should be asking their therapist so that they are most like they're informed and get an understanding of like the therapist's approach? Um, basically, so that, yeah, they can make the best decision possible for them. Yeah. So, you know, something that you didn't ask, which I'm just answering anyway, is do these. Right. I really encourage anyone who's thinking about starting therapy, shop around. Right. Therapy is not, you can 
find someone who has a degree in specialty that you like, but get on the phone with them and there's not a connection. The therapeutic rapport is, I think, the most important indicator of treatment outcomes. So more so than where someone went to school, what they studied, how long they've been practicing. Um, and so often I hear people say therapy doesn't work or, you know, it's not for me. And then I guarantee you with probably 80% of these people just went to one therapist, didn't think it was a good fit, never went back. Um, mm -hmm. So I really encourage you find someone you're comfortable with, right? You're telling them your life story. It involves a lot of vulnerability. You want to have someone that you feel comfortable with, that they, you can trust them, that they don't feel like they're judging you. Um, so that's just my side note that I really encourage that. Yeah. Um, so, and that's a great question. Like, what do you, say when you get on the phone. And sometimes I ask clients, do you have any questions? And they're like, I don't, I don't know what I should be asking. Right. So one thing I think can be really helpful is, you know, what is your style? Right. What can I expect in a session with you? Right. And then they can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm someone who um, right, assigns homework. I take a very solution focused approach or, you know, these sorts of things I really, or someone who says, you know, I really like to process things and take a lot of time talking about them. Um, and so I think that asking what someone's style is, is really important. Also asking what someone specializes in, right? Is because mm -hmm. they might not list it, right? And what population do you like to work with, right? Um, do you have expertise? You can ask about training. I'm very open with clients that they say, you know, like what training, I'm, I see couples, what training do you have in couples therapy, right? Or what, you know, you should, this is someone you're hiring, right? You can interview them, right? What is, what is your experience in this area? asking them those sorts of questions, you're also going to get a feel just for talking with them on the phone. So I think asking them questions to understand how they respond is important and see how the conversation is. Um, yeah. And what can I expect in a session from you? Right. What does it look like? Am I going to show up and you're going to ask me to divulge my whole childhood history in the first session? Or is it going to be more of a easing and getting to know each other? Right. What is your, are you okay with cursing in session? Right. Are you okay with me talking about sex or, you know, other things that you know, maybe you feel uncomfortable? If your therapist says no, be someone else. But um, not to the I mean, cursing is personal. I'm fine with it. I, you know, if a client curses in session with me, I will curse back. Um, but getting a sense of what, of what what it's like to work with them. Right. Does it feel like um, it's a power dynamic and they're telling you what to do? Or does it feel like somebody's kind of like working with you? Mm hmm. I love that. I think that's so important and it's a great way also, I mean, especially once you're kind of going down that journey with your, with your first therapist to get a good understanding of yourself. Like, you know, for example, some therapists have an approach that's very like friendship based, like they want their, you know, they will self-disclose a lot or, um, you know, just talk very casually and like maybe some people really like that but maybe that's not your thing maybe you want to have a more like authoritative figure yeah keep the boundaries or you know for example if, if you know that you're going to be talking um a lot about let's say like relationship problems or sex and let's say you're you know a heterosexual woman like do you want like a male therapist or do you want maybe a th female therapist do you feel more comfortable talking to a woman about those kind of things um, I guess the other questions I would just add to like when making that very necessary 10 minute call are for things because oftentimes like, therapists will quote, you know, a certain amount of money mm. um, as their price point. And unless you ask, they'll like you. It's easy just to assume that, you know, they don't let's say they don't accept insurance. So you, you kind of just assume, oh, that's very expensive. Maybe I'll move on. But it's worth asking, do you have a sliding scale, mm -hmm. which basically means they'll adjust the rate for you a little bit. So that happened to me. I, I was able to go down, <laughs> you know, a couple like 70 bucks or something um, when working with a therapist. So highly recommend doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And something to be mindful of is that, um, oftentimes out of network providers and maybe in network as well, but um, only have a certain number of sliding scale slots. So mm -hmm. um, let's say their sliding scale slots are full. You can also ask to get on a wait list, right? It doesn't mean that they're never going to see you for a reduced fee. Um, but understanding that even if they offer a sliding scale, they might not have the capacity to get offered to you at that time. That's a really good point. And even think about that. If you find someone you really connect with yeah. and you're like, I think this is the one for me, but um, you know, I, I can't afford this fee. Yeah. It's literally like dating. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's like speed dating. Okay. So I always wrap up with this, 
same type of questions and like usually they relate to the topic in the podcast but these are kind of unrelated just given um it's been very like you know in more of like an informative um like deep dive yeah. into <laughs> therapy and how to find the best therapist for you so the first question I have is what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today a hundred percent growing up with my brother a hundred percent um I think that having a brother who is not um you know neurotypical it's it's like the the word that is coming more and more term um was the big the hardest thing in my life um and also the greatest gift because it taught me um compassion and it taught me how to understand that you know how to understand that other people are struggling and how to connect with people that aren't even necessarily easy to connect i think that growing up with my brother is part of what made me um someone who can connect so easily with people because I had to learn, you know, what it's like to not be able to connect with someone and what you have to do to understand them. Um, and I think it's given me a, a new perspective in so many ways. I think it's made me a lot stronger in terms of, um, you know, the way knowing what I can handle. Right. And that I was able to go through a really difficult experience and come out with a, a great relationship with my brother um, an incredible relationship with my parents because of how strong we all were individually and together. Oh, I love that. And you are just like such a compassionate person. And I mean, I can't even imagine how amazing you would be as a therapist. <laughs> like selfishly <laughs> wish I could, um, I could work with you, but obviously that, that I would know. be <laughs> conflict of interest. Exactly. Which is another thing to know. Just don't you, you can't hire your friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> next question do you believe everything happens for a reason um I do I don't I mean I believe it, it this is a cop out of an answer I believe it scientifically right and that's actually a principle of dbt that everything has a cause I don't believe that you always know the cause right yeah. or know the reason um I think things happen for reasons and that doesn't mean the reason is that it's deserved or right but everything in the universe every action has a reaction and you know because of that I, everything to me makes sense um but you don't have to understand why it does to accept that there is a reason that's so interesting i've never 